You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual We're going to take comfort where we can find it. This weekend in the United Kingdom, a pro-hardline Brexit Tory member of parliament was turfed out, lost an election to a liberal Dem who is pro-Europe. That was a little good sign, a little twinkling of hope there in the United Kingdom. And then in Austria, where a hard-right, neo-Nazi-ish leader of a party founded by former members of Hitler's SS in Austria, hard right wing, anti-European, anti-immigrant, pro-reassembling somehow the Austro-Hungarian Empire, lost an election to the form, a former member of the Green Party. The Green Party in Europe is actually a party that elects people up and down the ballot, doesn't just run people for president, but can run someone for president once in a while and legitimately run someone for president and win an election because they're an actual political party, not a stunt is what they are here. Anyway, file under bitter irony, the Nazi lost the election in Austria by the same percentage that Donald Trump lost the popular vote here in the United States. So the Nazi in Austria is not going to be the president of Austria or the neo-Nazi or the leader of the party founded by Nazis is not going to be the president of Austria because Austria does not have an anti-democratic electoral college. Austria has a functioning parliamentary democracy. So good for Austria. Another silver lining there, in the Department of Taking Comfort, where you can find it, you might want to go check out trumpgrets.tumblr.com. That's T-R-U-M-P-G-R-E-T-S dot Tumblr dot com, where someone, and God bless the person behind this Tumblr, is pulling together tweets and blog posts from people who voted for Trump and are already still 40-plus-odd days before Trump is sworn in as president, already regretting their vote because Trump is not, as he promised to do, draining the swamp. He is splashing around in it. He is the corrupt motherfucking clown we all knew him to be, all of us on the left, the majority of Americans who voted against him. We all knew him to be all along, but suddenly the scales are falling from the eyes of some of Trump's supporters. Like Barbara Johnson, who tweets, I can't believe... Ryan is going to phase out Medicare. Next stop, Social Security. This is not what I wanted from Trump administration. Barbara voted for Donald Trump. Donald Trump on the campaign trail pledged over and over and over again to protect Medicare, protect Social Security. Donald Trump, within minutes of winning the election, had crawled into bed with Paul Ryan and backed Paul Ryan's plan to phase out Medicare, to hand vouchers to senior citizens and wish them luck on the open insurance market to go out there and buy their own insurance plans and to privatize social security. That is back on the table. George W. Bush tried to sell that to the American people in 2004 and fell flat on his fucking face. He stepped on that rake hard and didn't get anywhere, but it is back. And Donald Trump is betraying his base his base who depends on these programs, Social Security and Medicare. We all depend on these programs. All Americans depend on these programs. But Donald Trump's base in particular are dependent on this kind of federal largesse. And Donald Trump is betraying them or has betrayed them already. So if we're going to take our 
silver linings, our glimmers of hope wherever we can find them, you might want to go to trumpgrets.tumblr.com because there are lots of little glimmers of hope there. There are lots of people there, Trump voters, Trump supporters, who are already regretting their vote. These are the people we should be reaching out to on Twitter, reaching out to at home this Christmas. If you've got relatives who voted for Trump and you can hack it this Christmas, or you can go home and you can face them and argue with them, please do. If you can't face them this Christmas, if you don't want to go home, if you are home already, don't go. You don't have to. But if you can, you might want to go home and say to great aunt Martha, too bad about your Medicare, too bad about your social security checks, dad, that you were counting on beginning to come in in the next few years because you voted for this asshole who's already betrayed you. We need Trump grets to spread through make America great again, hat wearing rural and exurban and suburban areas so that in 2018, these people vote for Democrats for the Senate to punish Trump. And in 2020, they turf these bastards and clowns and racists and anti-Semites and homophobes and transphobes out of office. Okay, coming up today on the podcast, we have tons of your questions, and Erica Moen of Ojoy Sex Toy is here to recommend a sex toy for us. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm a 40-plus-year-old black kinky female. My dom is 20 years older than me, and my parents, my mother specifically, won't meet him or doesn't like him strictly because he's 20 years older. Now, into the bargain, she has seen our Kinbaku rope bondage pictures on from my phone. And we broke up once and because we're polyamorous and that's a whole other thing. My mother will not let him come to her house. Everyone else has met him. When I was in the hospital, my boyfriend, my dom, was there every day, and my parents and my nephew met him then, again, in that setting. But my mother won't let him come because of those damn pictures for Thanksgiving or Christmas. He's got another, a significant other, and he's going to her house, but I feel like he should be able to come to my parents' house. I feel like you might say that it's a similar situation to when a gay couple aren't accepted by one of the family members. Take away your presence. Tell your parents that, you know, if they accept you, they've got to accept your partner. And I feel like I can say that, or I could say that, sort of. But is that the right thing? It's not a gay or lesbian thing. It's he's 20 years older and she's seen me naked. Sure, I speak on behalf of everyone out there listening when I say, how the fuck did your mother see these goddamn pictures? Was she going through your phone? Do you guys have a Tumblr? Were you putting this out there? How did mom find these pictures of you in bondage? The first conversation you need to have with your mom is about your sex life, that you are kinky, that you are sorry that she knows that. There are things you should acknowledge. There are things that a mother has a right not to know. And the granular details of her daughter or any other kid's sex life, pretty high up there on that list. But your mom knows these things by some trick of fate that you don't unpack for us. But your mom knows these things. And you need to go to your mom and say, Unknowing these things is possible for you. You just have to suspend your disbelief. You have to will yourself 
not to know these things. And I'm sorry that you know them, but just put it aside and your other children, your other nieces and nephews and other relatives, they have sex lives too. And if you saw photographs of the particular and unique things that turn them on, it might squeak you out too. But you haven't seen those photographs. So you don't dwell on it. You don't wonder about it. You don't go into their phones and poke around looking for things that might offend you. And you need to sort of retroactively grant me the same zone of privacy and the same zone of willful suspension of disbelief and get over the fucking pictures of me tied up, which is something that we do with each other for fun because it is pleasurable for me and I'm not being abused and he's not abusing me. These are things that I like and enjoy. Waka, waka, waka. As for the age thing, clock the age difference on the incoming fucking president-elect of the United States and the first lady erect of the United States, whatever the fuck we're supposed to call her. Big age difference. 20-year age differences are nothing. I think that is a straw that your mother is grasping at because she can talk about the age difference and is more comfortable citing it than she is talking about what really rankles her, which is the dom sub play, which is the bondage, which is the submissiveness. I bet that's what really gets under her skin. And the way to solve that is to lay out some breadcrumbs that create a path for your mother to get back to that point before she knew, which is by pointing out that she knows these things or can infer them about others. I remember a million years ago when I came out to my mother and she didn't want my boyfriends around that she was just really uncomfortable with the idea that I was having sex with these guys or this guy and she couldn't interact with them. And I pointed out that my sister was probably having sex with her boyfriend, but she didn't have a problem with that. She'd look at my boyfriend and she would just see the blowjobs. She would see his dick going into my mouth, but she would look at my sister's boyfriend and not see the blowjob, not see his dick going into her mouth. And that's because, as my mother said, our relationship was only sex. It could only ever be sex because those blowjobs my sister gave would lead ultimately perhaps one day to marriage and family and children. The blowjobs I gave led only to more blowjobs. And so she could only see the blowjobs when she looked at my boyfriend. And I really really went round and round with her about that and got it into her head that she was the one with the problem, that the blowjobs weren't the problem. The sex wasn't the problem. She was the one obsessing about it. And if she could take her focus off the sex for a moment and look at the relationship, that maybe she could find her way clear to interacting with my boyfriend without obsessing about blowjobs. And she was the one with the obsession, not us. You can do that for your mother. Ultimately though, your presence is your only leverage over your parents when you are an adult. And that goes not just for gay, lesbian, bi, and trans folks. also goes for poly folks. It goes for kinky folks. It goes for 100% straight vanilla folks. Your leverage is your presence. And if your parents can't welcome you and welcome your partner or hers and treat you with respect, tell your parents you're not coming for Christmas. Tell your parents you want to be with your partner, partners at Christmas, so you are going where you feel welcome and where he feels welcome. You would love to come home for Christmas on the condition that your welcome includes him being made to feel welcome. And until your mom can come through with that kind of welcome, you'll see her on Arbor Day. Hey, Dan. I am a white cis hetero man, absolute picture of privilege. Uh, I'm also a feminist, so among other things, and I do my best to use that privilege to help those who are marginalized. I would, I would never, ever knowingly hurt someone, uh, especially my wife. So my wife is even more aggressively leftist than I am, but sexually she likes to be dominated. This took a long time for her to feel comfortable talking with me about, but now we've been experimenting with it, which is great. It's, it's 
strange for me because I've always thought of myself as submissive, though, uh, and she wants me to be to be dominant. But that experimentation now with arguably pretty low key teacher student fantasy has been so great that I want to go further with it. And while I condemn any sort of sexual violence in the real world, I've become very interested in rape play. Uh, all fantasy, all consensual, all just play, nobody actually getting hurt, but rape play. So I finally got the nerve to bring this up to her this past weekend. And she's trying to be as GGG as possible, but this is a lot for both of us, I'm sure, especially her. Uh, it's completely against who we are in the real world, and it's especially fraught, of course, due to the current American political climate. So what I need help on is what to do next. I broached the topic. She didn't slap me. She didn't run screaming. And we agree that absolutely everything needs to be carefully planned out and soberly agreed on before engaging in anything. But then when she asks me what exactly that scene looks like, I have no idea. I'm used to her taking control. I'm used to her calling the shots. And I don't know how to even begin putting that picture together. So how does one baby step up to something as extreme as rape play? I think you got ahead of yourself here. I think you went about this in the wrong order, you needed to have some idea what this would look like, what this rape play that you fantasized about. And I assume you, your fantasies aren't just some amorphous blob, but there's some specificity there. But you need to be able to articulate what it would look like to your wife before you floated the idea of engaging in, quote unquote, rape play. Now, when people talk about rape play – there's a blogger I quoted in my column uh, a year or two ago. Uh, I wish I could look it up, but I can't right now because uh, Wi-Fi is down. But I quoted her a couple years ago and she was saying maybe we should stop calling it rape play and call it ravishment play because the idea in a consensual sort of rape play scenario, of course, is the person who is being quote unquote raped is not so much being raped as being taken by someone forcefully that she wishes or he wishes to to be taken by. So it's more ravishment and it is ultimately consensual even if consent is in the play, not explicit or maybe in the play blurry in the scenario being acted out by both or more players that is, you know, has non-consensual role play-ish elements but everything is plotted out. And that's the most important part in any sort of varsity level kink, particularly one that is playing with the appearance of non-consensuality is for it to be plotted out. A beat sheet, they call it in Hollywood. You need a beat sheet. But you can't create a beat sheet, the two of you together, or you for the wife, until you know what the fuck it is you want to do. And you say that you don't know, but then you say, how do we tiptoe up? How do we baby step up to extreme rape play? So I think you must have some idea in your head. There's something you've been beating off about that you are too embarrassed to share with your wife and too embarrassed uh, to share with me or too worried about your you know, white, cis, hetero, lefty, feminist, privilege, sharing dude cred to articulate. And so you're not putting it on the table. You need to put that on the table so that your wife is aware of what you're baby stepping your way toward and whether that's a place that she wants to go ultimately. And people can have sort of out there versions of fantasies and never really get all the way to them or have any interest in getting all the way to them. 
but that is kind of the lodestar, right? That's the flame the moth flies around. But you have to be able to articulate. You have to be able to tell her what that is. If you have a hard time saying it out loud, write it down. If you don't want it instantly forwardable everywhere, you can write it out longhand on a legal pad. Although people now take pictures and send them around everywhere. So it's not a fail-safe protection. But if you're worried about emails being misconstrued or taken out of context or being hacked where you're unpacking your fantasy life, write it down on pieces of paper that you can throw into a fire after the conversation is over. But the first baby step, you ask for baby steps. The first baby step isn't try this kind of non-consensual-ish rape play scenario or try this one where, of course, the non-consensual is play acting non-consensual, not actual non-consensual. Or try this or try this baby step, try that baby step. The first step is being able to articulate what it is that you're jacking off about, what it is that you're fantasizing about. And I know from jacking off and I know from dudes and you have very specific mental images and scripts and scenarios playing through your head while you are jacking off. It is not vague and amorphous. It is not a blob. There are specifics there and you need to share those. If not with us, with her, with the understanding, with the asterisks, with the caveat that People may have more extreme versions of the fantasies that they're interested in exploring and never want to get to the most extreme version of it. There are people who want to be quote unquote dungeon slaves who want to live 24 7, 365 in some dungeon somewhere, but they're never going to really do that. And if you drill down with them, they're not actually really interested in doing that version of it, but it's fun to toy around with that fantasy. So you can have a more extreme version that you never want to get to, but you need to be able to articulate what it is. What it is that you want. I mean, take BDSM, which is the, the, you know, rape play can be an element of it or an aspect of it. It's about power. It's about control. But take BDSM. If somebody said to you, caller, oh, you know, I'm kind of into thinking about getting into BDSM, bondage, discipline, sadomasochism, and I'd like to tie you up and do stuff to you. But they couldn't tell you what that stuff was or what they wanted to tie you up with or for how long. And they were very vague about all of that. You would not feel comfortable allowing that person to tie you up to do, quote unquote, stuff to you for however long they wanted to. You would require them to really tell you what it is they were interested in, in specific, in great detail, and exactly what they wanted to do with you and to you while you were tied up before you agreed to let them tie you up that first time. Same goes for your wife with this kind of play. And your wife shouldn't agree to do any sort of quote-unquote, non-consensual, play-acting, cops and robbers for grown-ups with your pants off, ravishment, taken, rape play with you until you can articulate it. Until she knows what it is that you're interested in. Until she knows the direction in which you are headed with this, she shouldn't go there with you at all. And the onus, fantasy haver, is on you to articulate that for her so that she understands. Hi, Dan. I am a 21-year-old bisexual woman of color, and besides all that, I'm basically having an issue with my older sister that I never thought I would have. Uh, Harv and I have not spoken for a few uh, months now due to the fact that I've been avoiding her. Um, she's deleted me off social media because I just I don't respond to things that she says. Basically, it all started when I told her about my sexual assault from an ex-boyfriend and she basically told me every other reason why it would be my fault. The second reason is when I told her, when I came out to her as bisexual, she came out with all these reasons as to questioning why I would need to tell people, which really hurt me. And then 
when I came to her about me deciding to have a medical abortion, she didn't show me any type of empathy, which I would have shown to her in return. This doesn't make any sense to me because she's a liberal and she believes that all people should have rights, considering that both her sisters are of color. I miss her, but I know that maybe the distance is good for us. I just don't know how to approach her with this because she's very opinionated. And if I try to say something to her, she will indeed shut me down. The question is, should I approach her with this or should I just leave it alone and see if I run into her on the holidays? How many ways and how many times is your sister going to fail you before you cut her out of your life? You're sexually assaulted. You go to her. You tell her about it. She blames you. You come out as bi and she shames you for coming out and suggests that being out isn't something that you need to do and she's wrong. You tell her about the abortion service that you needed and she shames you about that. Fuck your sister. Rely on your other sister. Uh, if you see her at holidays, be cordial and civil to her, but don't continue to engage with her. Every time you engage with her, she seems to seize that opportunity to punch you in the face and, and to attempt to damage you emotionally, to shame you or, or, or fault you or blame you or sex shame you or abortion shame you or slut shame you and – Blame you for your own sexual stuff. Fuck her. Fuck her. Have as little to do with her as possible. Maybe your sister will grow up. Maybe she'll come around. Maybe one day she will apologize to you. Maybe one day she will see that what she did was toxic and it hurt her relationship, not just with you, but with others. If she's treating others in the same way. But in the meantime, you don't have to keep going to her. You don't have to keep sharing with her. And why would you want to? Yeah, yeah, she's your sister. You should be able to tell her these things. In the best case scenarios, you would be able to tell her these things. She would support you. But in this particular case, she doesn't support you. She doesn't seem to be capable of supporting you. Stop going to her in search of the support that you don't get from her. Your expectations right now are you should be able to share with her. You should be able to expect from her her support and her love and her compassion and understanding. You need to adjust your expectations where your sister is concerned and then you won't be disappointed by what you get from her. Right now, you keep going to her expecting one thing and getting something very different. Don't go to her with any expectations of getting what you should from her, which is her love and support. Then you won't be disappointed when you don't get those things. Don't go to her for anything. Smile and nod when you see her around the holidays. Otherwise, lean on your other sister, your other relatives, your parents, your friends for the love and support you need. Your sister is not the only love and support Pez dispenser on the planet. You can find that elsewhere. Hi, Dan. My wife and I are in the midst of moving to a monogamous relationship, uh, and a few things are coming up that I'm hoping to get a little advice on. We've been married for about 10 years and have always been interested in, in an open relationship, but never felt like it was really the right time. Um, now that we do, my wife uh, has found a really exciting possibility for her that meets a lot of our needs. Um, and she's having a texting relationship with a man. We both feel really good about her planning a date with him. Our sex life has never been better in the lead up, and I'm really happy with how well we're communicating and how things are progressing. We are also talking about opening up for me, and at the moment, what my wife feels comfortable with is trying to set up a threesome with a friend of hers. Uh, a threesome is at the top of my list, and we are having a few good ideas on how to get this set up. Uh, eventually, I think I'd like permission to go out on my own as well. Um, and I've made that clear to my wife, but for now, I think this is a good way for us to start out. I've been known to think with my dick at times in the past, and my wife has concerns with this, and um, that when faced some of the sexiest experiences in my life, that I won't always make the best decisions. 
which is why I think she wants to make a lot of decisions herself. This is a little frustrating to me because I think that this is based on some experiences that we had before we were married, um, and now I'm a much different person sexually, but I understand the concerns, and I'm okay starting out like this to make sure that she is comfortable. Uh, The biggest issue that I'm struggling with is I feel like I don't have any control over the situation, and I feel like it's making me a pathetically needy husband, uh, which is not what I want to be. She's the one having these exciting texting relationships with another man. Uh, She's the one in charge of setting up a threesome, and I feel like my only interaction with this super exciting new part of our lives is through her. I think I end up coming across as needy and lacking in self-confidence, but I'm always wondering uh, what's going on with this. And the only way for me to find out is to to talk to her about it. It's making her less excited about the situation and to talking to me. It's making me struggle with how to uh, be the, the man that I want to be. So what advice do you have for us, for me to be less clingy, to be able to feel some of the excitement of this new path uh, and be the confident person that I want to be and and not asking for all these things from her. Find me the man, husband, boyfriend, single dude, who hasn't been known to think with his dick from time to time. We are all prone toward thinking with our dicks once in a while. And ladies, women, you are prone to thinking with your pussies. Frequently, often, of course, asterisk caveat, not all women have pussies, not all men have dicks, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, your wife needs to take some responsibility here for what she's asked of you. She's asked for you to invest her with complete control over how this is going to go down, at least at first, because of your actions in the past that made her feel insecure about your dick having any control, about your dick being in the driver's seat at all. So she's going to take complete control. Meanwhile, she is having this flirty, fun, texty, sexty, uh, erotic tension building up relationship via her phone, with this dude that she's about to get with. And you would like to have that same sort of erotic tension build. The the erotic tension is building for you about this three-way that may be about to happen and the adventure that you're about to have, but there's no outlet for it. Erotic tension building for her, outlet, text with this dude. Erotic tension building for you, no outlet other than her, other than her talking with you about it, other than her cranking you up. So she needs to take some responsibility for that. Of course, you're going to focus your erotic anxiety, erotic energy, and, and all this tension on her because this is all coming to you through her. So she needs to ovary up. She needs to come through for you in the same way that her future sex toy guy, whoever that is, is coming through for her with the texts, cranking her up, making her feel alive and sexually energized. And that's redounding to the benefit of your marital sex life, which is common in cases like this. She needs to do a little cranking up of you too. This needs to be mutual, not just mutual in that you're both going to have these experiences that you've always wanted to have, but mutual in you're both having some outlet for the sexual tension that's building up in advance of these sexual experiences. She has an outlet outside the relationship. The burden's not on you. The burden is on her, though, for you to have that outlet inside the relationship because she wants this control. So with that control... With that power comes responsibility, responsibility to be the outlet for you that she has outside the relationship. 
We're going to take a quick break from the calls to speak with Erica Moen. She's a cartoonist at the comic book studio Helioscope in Portland, Oregon. And together with her husband, Matthew Nolan, Erica draws Oh Joy Sex Toy, a weekly comic all about the wonderful world of sex and gender and identity and kink. And we are now going to have Erica on the show every month to recommend a new sex toy for us. So, so what do you got for us, Erica? All right. This week or this month, I've got Black Label S Chase, uh, which I'm not actually sure how to say it quite right. I'm not sure if it's S or S-A, kind of like a European thing, but it's uh, my husband and I just call it the fuck couch. <laughs> so we're going, our first sex toy is sex furniture? Yeah. Well, it's the thing I'm most excited about right now. So I know you guys said to look up a toy, but like, this is the thing that I'm, I just got and I'm super excited about. And it's like, I, I was really surprised at how much of a difference it actually does make. So, so what is it? Describe it. Okay. It's sort of like, it's this fancy futuristic looking furniture that like kind of like what you might see in the movie 2001. And uh, it's kind of shaped like a jelly bean. And it's got these little, uh, what are these called? D rings that are along the bottom. So you can like tie somebody up to it. And it's got this cushion thing on it. And basically you, uh, you always hear these people making claims saying, Oh, you know, my sex furniture will really make a difference. My sex toy is just going to blow your mind. You're like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. But this one, the way it's curved and the way it supports your body, I was surprised at what an active difference it made in in how my husband and I were fucking each other. Like it just it rotates you and supports you just a little bit differently than when you're just on the bed. And I, I was really surprised. Will it fit under the tree if somebody wants to think about it for a holiday gift? It'll fit next to the tree. <laughs> Can you leave it next to the tree in front of company or is it obviously a giant D-ringed festooned sex toy? Okay, so we have it in our living room and we've had friends come over and they all immediately want to sit on it. And they're like, okay, I know this is your sex chair, but it kind of looks like just a futuristic furniture thing. It kind of looks like like the kind of furniture you might see at one of those startup companies where they employ 20 year olds and they all ride around on little scooters. <laughs> Until they're tied to the sex furniture and then the riding room yeah, the scooter stops. The, the D-rings might be a giveaway, but you can get it without the D-rings as well. Like they've got kind of simpler versions and more fancy versions. So yeah, it just, it kind of looks like it's just a really fancy futuristic couch thing to sit on, and, but and, you can also fuck on it. And why do you need this additional thing to fuck on? What's so much better about fucking on this thing than a mattress or bending someone over the couch you already have? The way it supports you. Uh, like, like I've, I've fucked on the couch and I've fucked on the bed and that is a lot of fun, but this actually kind of like props you up in such a way, like so many different positions. And I found that things that my husband and I have done before and, and I have a great time on this thing, I could be supported in such a way that it just rotates my pelvis a tiny bit. And it's like, whoa, this is, this feels like a brand new thing. This sounds like um, it could be a really helpful thing for someone with a disability, for people with size issues, for people with... Oh, for sure. Definitely. With medical issues or, or chronic medical conditions, it can make being in a certain position for sex painful or awkward. It sounds like this is not just a fun sex toy, but perhaps for some people, a, a transformative one. I Yeah, I absolutely think so. I, I am able-bodied, but I can very much see how this would be super helpful for somebody who needs that extra support here or there to just kind of help line them up a little bit differently. Um, yeah, so it's made by Liberator. And again, it's the Black Label S or S-A, Shays. The Black Label Shays. What do these things run? Let's see here. From about $450 to $630, which I know is a lot, uh, but I don't know. Like, it, it's a really good product. 
All right, Erica Moen with her husband, Matthew Nolan. They draw Oh Joy Sex Toy, a weekly comic about all things sex at ojoysextoy.com. Erica, thank you so much. We look forward to having you back next month, maybe with a cheaper toy. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll look for something real cheap for you guys. <laughs> okay, for January when everybody's broke and depressed about, you know, what's happening on January 20th. We'll come in with some, some low bar recommendations to, to get you guys uh, getting off again. There we go. Thanks so much, Erica. Hey, Dan. I'm a mid-30s guy living in the Boston area. Uh, just like most of us, I feel like the election was pretty crappy. But at least in Massachusetts, we've got a little bright spot in that we passed legalizing pot. So my history, I've dabbled in a little bit, primarily back in college. But it's not really a regular part of my life anymore. And here's the thing. My wife has never smoked. She seems to be starting to kind of warm up to the idea of using pot. But she still is just kind of hung up on the fact that, quote, I've made it this far. Why break it, break it now? Anyway, she knows that you didn't start till later in life either, and uh, she likes to likes to listen to your advice. Anyway, you could give her a pep talk. Thanks. My advice would be not to smoke pot, lady. If you're listening, do not start smoking pot. Start eating pot. One of the great things about the legal recreational cannabis markets in Oregon, in Washington State, in Colorado, and now coming to California is edibles. Used to be that if you wanted to eat pot, I, I don't like to smoke pot. I have asthma. I have shitty lungs. I don't want to abuse them with smoke. You would make pot brownies. You would make pot cookies. And it was really hard to predict how strong they would be. You would make a batch of pot brownies. And then you would have to have a little nibble over a couple of days at a time until you gauged what the correct dosage was for that particular pan of brownies. Sometimes a quart of a brownie would fuck you up. And sometimes you need to eat two brownies to get a buzz. You just never knew. And – the legal edibles market has taken the guesswork out of edibles because you know exactly the dosage you're getting. Five grams of TH, five milligrams of THC, 10 milligrams of THC or grams, whatever it is. And you can then have the perfect mild buzz. You can have the perfect, I don't have to be anywhere this weekend. I don't have anything to do this weekend. I'm going to slaughter myself. Buzz. So, wife of caller, get some edibles. Get some edibles that have a low THC content. And enjoy them. And you can take them and go to a movie and hang out and see how it makes you feel. But you do not have to start smoking pot if you don't want to smoke pot. But you can and you should and I think you would enjoy eating it. I have a question for Dan. I'm in my late 30s, young gay man. I've been dating. I've kind of been single for about five years now. It seems like the older I get, the shorter my relationships last. I used to be when I was in college. I meet somebody within days, we'd be dating, we'd consider each other boyfriends, we'd have a fun, f fulfilling relationship. And I went on like for like this until I was 30 and kind of had an awakening and wanted to change who I was. Since changing who I was, I have not really been able to keep relationships longer than three or six months. I also feel like I'm not connecting with the other people the way I used to or am feeling that needy to be in a relationship with those people anymore. And many times, you know, find myself putting them in the friend zone or just like stop calling them because I lose interest. You know, I was wondering if you have any advice for maybe things that I'm doing that you think are wrong. Also, if you think that maybe this is in my head, I'm being coming too negative or if I'm just kind of closing myself up from opportunities that could be out there in front of me. Single people have this tendency to pathologize themselves, to read illness or dysfunction into what may just be a dry spell or 
you dating a series of guys that you lost interest in, not because there's anything wrong with you, but because the guys weren't interesting and it was just a coincidence, just a series of relationships that went nowhere because they weren't guys you particularly wanted to go anywhere with. And the guy will come along that you feel more strongly about and more connected to. Could be that. It also could be that you may be the kind of person that doesn't really want a long-term relationship or any sort of long-term commitment. There are people out there who aren't happy in and do not want long-term relationships. But a lot of these people sometimes have a hard time conceiving of themselves as the kind of person who doesn't really want a long-term relationship. So is going to have a long series, a lifelong series of short relationships and sex friendships and FWB arrangements that they find very satisfying. But they can't conceive of themselves at that because the culture tells you that we should all want that sort of long-term epic R. And if you don't want that, there's something wrong with you. Rather than looking at inside, at what you do want, and examining also not just what you believe that you want, but what you're out there looking for, what you're out there doing, looking at your actions and the choices you're making. Because sometimes you have to reverse engineer from your choices and your actions to what it is that you probably really want, what your actions are saying about what it is that you really want. So powerful is the unpartnered people or single people are losers zap or people who can't sustain long-term, long, 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 multi-decade term relationships. There's something wrong with them zap. So powerful is that zap that people believe it. Even people who are made miserable by it, made miserable by being in long-term relationships that they don't really want to be in, but they don't want to get out of because that means they're the kind of person who can't sustain a long-term relationship and they're a loser. Or, it makes miserable people like perhaps you, caller, people who have long series, people who have a series of short-term relationships that they find gratifying in the short term, but then nothing works out for the long term and they ghost or they walk away and then they walk away feeling like, oh my God, there must be something wrong with me. And maybe there is. Maybe you should talk to a therapist. Who knows? Maybe there is something wrong with you or maybe this is just – who you are and what you want and your reptile brain is at war right now with the rest of your fucking brain. And maybe you should listen to your reptile brain a little bit. Maybe your reptile brain is telling you that what you need in your life to make you happy are short-term connections with lots of new people and you need that variety and you need that churn to be happy. So instead of asking yourself, why can't I keep a guy? Ask yourself, are you happy? Are you happy in these short-term relationships? Are you happy making a connection that lasts a few weeks, lasts a couple of months, and then you move on to a new connection? And if that's what makes you happy, if that's what you want, then you have a responsibility not to mislead people about who you are, what you want, what your intentions toward them are. You need to clearly communicate to people that there's no long-term with you. There's perhaps a long-term friendship that can be salvaged, but your sexual connections and your relationships are brief and if it's what both partners want, satisfying and you can stick the dismount by staying friends and always having that connection that was solidified at the start with erotics and attraction and sex and you can always have that connection and maybe that connection can be the LTR but the romantic and sexual connection, maybe for you that's not the kinds of LTRs you're going to have. Hi Dan, I know this is another phone call and a long litany of phone calls the Lovecast has been getting about Donald Trump and everything that just recently happened. Uh, but if you will let me, I would like to hijack your show for a brief moment and talk to other people like me. So I'm a white straight male in the Pacific Northwest. 
uh, and I would like to talk to the other dudes for a second and everybody else can listen in. Um, there's been a lot of shouting and there's been a lot of upset voices and there's been a lot of anger everywhere. And I know that I'm lucky enough to blend in. I have a specific set of values, but when you look at me, I look like the people who voted for Trump and that gives me a lot of leeway in this society. Um, with that said, uh, I believe that being an advocate for other people who are not like me is important. And uh, I know as a white guy, I drink beer, I play poker, I do a lot of just stereotypical white dude stuff. And I think in those moments, uh, I have a responsibility to live out my personal values when I'm busting balls with a friend and they say something that's un- inappropriate. I need to call them on it in the moment. Um, my advocacy in those moments seems small, but it dawned on me that little moments add up to big changes. And I know that there's a lot of people who are scared in this country, but I have an advantage. I'm on the the side of tolerance and equality, and I can be a sleeper cell. So when someone thinks it's appropriate to say something to me, uh, just because of what I look like and it's not appropriate, I can then call them on it and let them know, no, look, you're wrong. It's not appropriate. These are the reasons why. Uh, and I also just wanted to talk to the other dudes. Like if you're in a poker game, if you're at doing whatever, drinking a beer with a friend and they stop, they start saying things that are inappropriate. You need to call them on their shit. Uh, also, uh, I know that Dan has, uh, told people to donate money and they should totally do that for causes that are uh, important. Um, But on the other time, on the other side of the conversation, I think it's important for white straight males like me to volunteer and put time into those organizations and show up and be seen. Uh, We need to show that people who look like us, the the predominant whatever of society uh, are on the side of supporting equality, women's rights, LGBTQ issues, and that when those minorities or people who are in those groups feel threatened, they can look to us and be like, look, I do have support in that community, and that community shows up for me. Hashtag not all men. Hashtag not all white men. Hashtag not all straight white men. Thank you for calling. Appreciate your imploring other straight white privileged cisgendered guys out there to speak the fuck up when not when people say things that are inappropriate, people say inappropriate things all the time. There are times when it is appropriate to say the inappropriate thing because you're being funny. It's not about being inappropriate. It's about being assholes. It's about being wrong. It's about being racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic or anti-Semitic or xenophobic. Those are the furies the Trump campaign has unleashed and we have seen the Trump campaign, the Trump election, the election of Donald J. Trump. Those are the furies that have been released. It's not a, a nation awash in inappropriate remarks. It's a nation awash in hate crimes that have spiked since Trump's election. People being attacked because they're wearing the hajib. People being attacked because they're gay, which has happened. People being attacked because of their race, because of their faith. So it's not about somebody said an inappropriate thing at a poker game. It's about how – People allowing others like them to say racist, sexist, xenophobic, Islamophobic, transphobic, homophobic, anti-Semitic shit and get away with it contributes to that culture of violence and impunity that people now perceive. That they can act out with impunity 
against people who are different or not white men or white women, straight white men or women like them. So I thank you for the call. I thank you for speaking up. I want to second your encouragement of others to speak up and not just other straight white guys, but all of us to speak the fuck up when people are saying things that empower bigotry and that in turn, that empowering of bigotry fuels violence. So we all got to speak up and we got to remember those of us who are not straight white men or straight white women that yes, Donald Trump won the election because a majority of straight white men and a majority of straight white women voted for that asshole. But Donald Trump did not win a hundred percent of the straight white male vote or the straight white female vote. He won a majority, but it means that there is a significant minority of hashtag not all men, hashtag not all white guys, hashtag not all straight guys out there who didn't support him and are on our side and are deep behind enemy lines at times and can at those times deep behind enemy lines speak the fuck up and help create and enforce to what extent that they can cultural norms around tolerance and respect. So thank you for calling. Thank you for calling out and thank you for doing most importantly. Thank you for Speaking up. Dan, I am a teacher. I teach, uh, not to give it all away, but debate. And it's something that's a very active, competitive event that uh, high school and middle school students partake in. And I love my job. I love what I do. I am having doubts about continuing in the profession. However, after this election, I've already heard whispers of Ben Carson being the Secretary of Education, and I would like to continue teaching uh, rhetoric and argumentation and valuing critical thinking. I think they're important things for anybody to learn, no matter their age, but especially for the next generation. However, the idea that my profession as an educator is seen as less important already now under current administration for whatever reason, but to also watch it turn into something where we, we have to consider creationism. We cannot have the debates anymore about climate change um, if the current administration acts how they want to uh, just last year we were discussing whether or not carbon taxes should be imposed and my students are also very concerned. So um, I, I don't know. I don't know if I am in the right profession anymore, if this is going to be an institution, education and free will and critical thinking is, is going to be devalued so much more now that I might as well focus on maybe making a little more money and raising my own family. I don't know. Maybe I just need a pep talk. You say your students are concerned now about the results of the election. How concerned are they going to be if teachers that they know and like and trust and know to be sane and thoughtful and rational people start to jump ship and disappear now? Don't do it. Don't go anywhere. Look, if you want to go into a new line of work because you want to make more money to take care of your family, go ahead. You don't need to point to the election as a justification for that. And that's not an irrational desire. And there's nothing wrong about wanting to 
take as good care of your family as you possibly can economically. But schools are for the moment under local control. You answer to administrators and school boards and hopefully are protected by a union where you are. And you don't have to run screaming for your profession just because there's going to be a towering ignoramus of an asshole, whether it's Ben Carson or anyone else, at the head of the federal government's uh, education department. Stay put. You can fight back and you're in a better position to fight back from that position than you are from outside that position. And if they decide to persecute you or go after you or drive you out and you wanted to go anyway and you have other opportunities anyway, then you can – Go out throwing bombs over your shoulder. You can go out as an example of the Trump. Be driven out and allow the media to write about it. Contact the media and be driven out and allow your story to be an example of the damage being done to our educational system by these ignoramuses and assholes in the Trump administration. But there's too soon. But you don't have to do that yet. And you don't have to fire yourself in advance of the Trump administration somehow reaching down into your local school district and engineering your shit canning. Don't do their work for them. If every good and decent, rational, sane, liberal, lefty, empiricist of a teacher walks now, who's left? You're doing the Trump administration and these fucking assholes a favor if you walk off the field now. And you're doing your kids, your students who look up to you a disservice. They already feel under threat and insecure and freaked out. Don't walk out on them. Not now. Not at this moment. Hi, Dan. I'm 25. I'm female. And about a year ago, I moved across the country with a guy I'd been with for five years. I started hanging out with a girl that I knew in the new city, and I really fell for her. I identified as bisexual, and the guy and I had had an open relationship, um, which I sort of pushed into a poly relationship so that I could date this girl. It was a really confusing and stressful time. The guy didn't want me to be dating her. And after about two months, he and I broke up. Being with her made me realize that I'm actually super gay, which was cool to realize. Um, He and I breaking up was the right thing to do. But the months that I strung him along with promises that it would be okay eventually were like absolutely not okay. I never meant to hurt him, but I did really badly. I'm with the girl now monogamously and we're happy. Um, But my ex calls what I did emotional abuse. And while I just remember it as a time when I was confused and trying to make everything fit and make sense, I know that I hurt him really badly and I take the label of abuser seriously. The guilt from this just haunts me a lot. I know he doesn't want me in his life, which is understandable. I get really scared of seeing him or even of seeing friends that we used to share. Even trying to tell my side of the story to those friends feels like I'm asking people for forgiveness. In the past, I've always been the one who got hurt in relationships, and I just don't know how to deal with this guilt or how to be responsible. I did something bad, and I learned a lot of lessons, and I'm not going to do it again, but the damage that I caused remains. I'm happy in my day-to-day, but I still think about this all the time and feel terrible. Do you have any advice for getting past this? Did you leave something out of your question? Were there details or things you did that were just terrible and awful that you omitted to make yourself sound better? Because all I got from your question was you're in a relationship for five years. It ended for reasons. The dismount was a little messy. You didn't quite stick the dismount. Maybe there were assurances that you shouldn't have uh, given as things were coming apart, but that's really common as relationships end. Sometimes people say things to comfort the other person uh, that they they hope are true. Like, I I hope we're going to still be together forever. And they leave off the I hope part. We're going to be together forever. They leave off the I hope part as things come apart. So I don't understand why you feel like an abuser because if a relationship ending and ending messy 
makes you abusive, then we are all abusive. No, I mean, that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. I think, I guess I'd never sort of been in that position um, before. And it was like a very, um, I'm someone who likes to kind of like, you know, make people happy and tell them what they want to hear. And I think it like, it can get to the extent where like, I have a lot of trouble knowing what I'm feeling. So I'll kind of say things that, Mm-hmm. when I look back, I'm like, Oh, that was like not true, but like it felt true in the moment. Um, but I think it was, um, I don't know. It's like the doing that over a period of several months, um, while this like relationship was falling apart is what, um, I, I know that my ex considers it to have been like emotional abuse. And mm-hmm. that's just like something that I, I take really seriously. Okay. Well, it sounds like it was emotionally difficult for your ex and maybe, Maybe it felt abusive to him to be lied to repeatedly and only discover in retrospect that those were lies, which you also only, for the most part, kind of sort of discovered in retrospect. But that's just mm-hmm. human relationships and human relationships falling apart and and pain. And that's a risk that we all run when we enter into committed, open-ended, longish, termish, uh, romantic and sexual relationships. They could end and we could get hurt. If hurt is something that you can't stand if hurt is something that if you experience it you have to regard yourself as having been emotionally abused then maybe you're not cut out for relationships but to be i don't know how old your ex-boyfriend is but you're only 25 and you were with this person for five years and very few people are as adults you know out of their 20s are with the people that they were dating before they could legally buy a beer So it sounds a little bit like a combo of unrealistic expectations around longevity for, you know, an early 20s relationship, but also unrealistic expectations about what you're entitled to in a romantic relationship. You're not entitled to never be broken up with. You're not entitled to never feel pain. And you're not entitled also to never be lied to. And, you know, it's terrible to be lied to and it's terrible to lie to someone, but sometimes we lie without really meaning to or intending to. Sometimes we offer someone, you know, a, a, a white lie or we lie to comfort them or we, we say things that we hope are true or believe to be true in that moment that only later do we realize aren't true. Like the fact that you said, you said you were gay, right? That means not by gay or are you by? Yeah. At this, at this point. Yeah. Okay. So you realized in the course of this relationship that you're, that you're a lesbian and what are you supposed to do? Yeah. With suck his dick for the next 50 years because of a promise you made him when you were 23 years old. (laughs) Yeah. You can't do that. So you can feel bad about how it played out. You can feel bad about having hurt someone that you would rather have not ever uh, made to feel pain, but you're not an abuser. Like abuser, it means something very specific. How would you define that then? Like how would you, like where do you draw the line? Well, that, you know, I'm trying to let you off the hook from the abuser label and you're going to ask me that question. And it's going to be very hard for me to draw the line. It's like the definition <laughs> of pornography. We know pornography when we see it. That's the famous, uh, the Supreme Court justice, I think Black, uh, Blackman's definition yeah. of pornography. We know it when we see it. Um, uh, abusers, there's a certain cast of, you know, no one has a trouble identifying this person as abusive when they're physically abusive and emotionally abusive and vicious and lashing out and controlling someone and preventing them from having relationships with their friends or family, cutting them off from support, isolating them, uh, you know, throwing fits of jealous rage, uh, sometimes engaging in acts of physical violence, followed by, you know, apologies and 
you know, tears and promises that the person will change to keep that person around to keep using them as an emotional and sometimes physical punching bag. That's abuse. That this didn't end well, that, you know, you two coming apart ripped a little skin off both of you and was painful for both of you and more painful for him. Let's honor his pain. More painful for him because he was left for someone. And also through your process of self-discovery, he realized that this relationship that he was so emotionally invested in was really grounded in a lie. And hopefully in time, maybe he'll meet some other people who are lesbians. He'll meet some other people who are queer and he will learn that it's sometimes very hard for women to realize who they are sexually because the culture just heaps so much crap on women about who they're supposed to be sexually that women sometimes have a hard time tapping into, you know, what's inside and who they are, which is why it's so much more common for women to come out as lesbians after long-term heterosexual relationships or later in life than gay guys. Cause you know, we men we're told whatever you want, darling, you should have who, you know, whoever you are is awesome. Go for it. And guys are just likelier to self-actualize sexually earlier than women for that reason in part. And so hopefully he'll come to have some empathy in the future for your predicament and see that it wasn't malicious on your part, that you didn't intend to hurt him that you were also kind of victimized by the culture and there was pain for you in this too. More for him. Let's honor his pain. More for him. But mm-hmm. maybe someday he'll be able to put what went down in perspective. Likelier, how long yeah. did this breakup happen? Um, it was at the beginning of the year, so in like February. Okay, so likelier for him to be able to put things in perspective a year or two from now. Maybe when he's in a relationship yeah. with a straight woman. Mm-hmm. who's, you know, sucking his kidneys out through his dick, <laughs> you know, and, and maybe down the road a little bit, he'll be able to heal. But for right now, like you have to own the awkwardness. You can feel bad, but you don't have to round yourself up to, you, you're not a monster who did something terrible. It was just a relationship ending and coming apart and a relationship that needed to end and needed to come apart because yeah. you weren't who you thought you were when you got into this relationship. Yeah. And did he want you to stick around for 50 years and live a lie? Like eventually he's going to be able to answer that question honestly and say no. That, you know, given the option between never being dumped by you or being with someone who can't love him and didn't love him for decades, the latter would Mm -hmm. have been more shattering and more emotionally abusive than an honest, an honest dump, which is what this was. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate you calling. You're welcome. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old heterosexual woman in Los Angeles. Um, I'm calling because I have a question. So one of my girlfriends recently called me, and she wanted to confide in me a secret that a man that she had been casually fucking for the last few months was married. And I kind of reacted really calmly and was okay with it. But then... She, about an hour later, I started getting upset and didn't know what to do. It's her business. It's her life. It doesn't affect me. She didn't sleep with my fiance. You know, it's fine. But it's just weird for me because I'm about to ask her to be a bridesmaid. So I just, I want to say something to her to let her know that, you know, I I don't hate you. I don't think you're an awful person. But I don't know. Like, I I want her to know that I am disappointed in her, but I don't want to make her feel like shit because I'm sure she already feels bad. So I just, 
I don't know what to do. God, with all the grief and bullshit and obligations heaped up on maids of honor and bridesmaids these days, I, I wasn't aware that a morality clause had also been written into the contract. If you don't want your friend to be your bridesmaid because she's stooping some married dude, then don't ask her to be your bridesmaid. There's no reason to turn the knife or salt the wound by informing her via telegram that she can't be your bridesmaid because she's sucking the cock of somebody who happens to be married to somebody else and institution of marriage and sacred sanctity and not wanting to, I don't know, jinx your wedding or not wanting her to be in the same room at the moment that your fiance becomes your husband for fear that she might tackle him and eat his dick. Who knows what she might do at that moment? She's just driven mad by other women's husbands. Maybe she'd be happy for this cup to pass from her, the bridesmaid cup. If you want to be a friend to your friend, I don't think you should punish her if you indeed wanted to include her as a bridesmaid in your wedding for the particulars of her intimate life at this moment in time. You should probably, if you were her friend and not her confessor and not the nun in the grade school in your head that you think she's a student at, if you were her friend, you would reach out to her and ask her not if the guy she's stooping is married, but why she's stooping this married guy. And then maybe you would discover that there is a reason for it that might spark in you some empathy, not approval necessary, but empathy and understanding. Maybe she's at a particularly low moment in her life. Maybe she feels very insecure. Maybe this guy is paying attention to her in a way that nobody else is for his own reasons. And maybe she's being manipulated and maybe she's the victim here. Or maybe he has a bedridden wife and they haven't had sex for 20 years. And this is how he manages to stay married and stay sane. And she is doing a kindness of a sort, bank shot, to him and to his wife. It's just not enough to say somebody's fucking somebody who's married and then declare them both abhorrent, unfit to bridesmaid creatures worthy of our condemnation. You really have to go into the particulars and maybe being a friend to her and asking her why and talking with her about it at length and not just getting the outline, but getting the details. Maybe you would help her see that this wasn't good for her if indeed it isn't good for her. Maybe that conversation with you, not about whether she gets to be your bridesmaid or not because you disapprove of whose dick she's sucking at the moment, maybe a conversation about where she's at right now and who she's with and why she's there might help her extricate herself from this. Maybe if you reached out with compassion and understanding and not like some sacred sanctity of marriage avenging fucking angel in a veil... You could help your friend. And if you were a good friend, you would want to help your friend rather than punish her or stitch a scarlet letter onto her fucking lavender goddamn bridesmaid outfit. Call her and talk to her. Not about your goddamn wedding. I know when we're planning a wedding, it's pretty much all we can talk about. It's all we can think about. It's all about us. Your friend is fucking somebody else, but it's really about you. It's really about who's going to be in those pictures that you're really not going to look at that often. And if you get divorced, like a lot of people do, you're never going to want to look at again. This is about her, not about you. And she's making a choice right now. And she probably has reasons. Talk with her about those reasons. If they're good reasons, maybe you will be mollified and maybe her presence in your bridal party won't seem like such an affront. If they are bad reasons, maybe a compassionate friend listening and unpacking this with her will help her see that the reasons she's with this guy are bad, that she's hurting herself and she will bring some 
other woman's husband to your wedding as her date? Hi, Dan. I'm a bisexual and transgender Jewish person living in rural Appalachia in North Carolina. I have a young child and I live alone with him in a county filled with Confederate flags and fundamentalist churches. I haven't started transitioning yet for fear of violence and that fear has obviously intensified in the last week. Even though my neighbors don't know it, I am the face of the unknown for so many of them. Do I do I have a civic responsibility to stay here and come out and transition and just hope that people's compassion is stronger than their fear? So much of the fear that was represented in the anti-trans part of HB2 was born of just total lack of exposure of rural communities to an actual trans person just living their life. I'm white, and like I said, I haven't started physically transitioning, so I feel like I have some privilege that I have to use by coming the fuck out and demanding respect and demanding to be seen and demanding that I have a right to live safely in rural America. But I'm also legitimately afraid of physical harm to myself or my child or my home. And I don't believe that local police or local politicians or local judges would actually be committed to my safety as a trans person. So a big part of me just says, just go, run back to a city, come out and transition there and work towards unifying our country from that place of relative security rather than what feels like intense vulnerability staying here. What do you think? People get mad at me for what I'm about to tell you. I get a lot of pushback. I get a lot of grief for this. But I'm going to tell you what I really think, which is that you should fucking go. Get thee to a city. Go. And it doesn't have to be a Chicago or a New York or a Portland. You can get to Charlotte. There are college towns in North Carolina that still have that small town rural feel that are pretty liberal and progressive, uh, the names of which escape me at the moment. Yes, we can make an argument that you know if we abandon these places where we are not known, we will never be known, they'll never get any better about us. And now gay people can live in a lot of these rural areas and suburbs in a way that we didn't used to be able to and live openly. But there was at the beginning kind of the great clumping up in the Greenwich Villages and uh, the boys' towns in Chicago's and the Castro districts in San Francisco. There was this this great clumping up to reach a kind of critical mass, which for a lot of gay men was around romance and dating and opportunity. But it was also for physical safety and political power. And you as a trans person at this particular moment in the history of the trans movement should not be faulted for clumping up for your own physical safety and to achieve that kind of political power, to walk the path that the LGB part of the rights movement already kind of cleared and lit. So I'm not going to fault you if you want to go. Tremendous act of bravery for you to stay. It's also a tremendous burden to place on the shoulders of your child. That has to be taken into consideration. If you stay there and you transition and your neighbors are angry and freaked out, the kids that your kid is going to be going to school with will also be angry and freaked out. And it's not just you staying in this shitty place and being the tip of the spear. It's you putting your child in the position where they are also the tip of the spear and it's not a choice that they made. Some kids can hack it. Some kids have no choice. That is a a furnace in which some people's identities and characters are forged. But if you have a choice, I really think you need to take your kids' emotional safety, physical safety, and security into account while you are making that choice about whether you stay in Shitsville or go someplace where there are more people like you, not 
all people and only people like you, but more people like you and therefore more political power, more employment opportunities, more physical safety for you and your child. So not telling you what to do, I guess. <laughs> I will hear from now, after your call place, I will hear from people who insist that I'm giving you shitty advice and we have to stay in these awful places and we have to be ourselves and be out and fight. And we'll probably play a couple of their comments. So you will get the other side. But if I were in your position, if I were in your shoes and a parent, I would be packing my bags already. Hi, Dan. This is Eric. In Los Angeles, 27 years old. I met a girl over Tinder. We've been together for going on two years now. And the relationship is great. Sex is great. Only downside that I have is sometimes she loves spending time with her family more than she does with me. Her family is very supportive of her, but they do use her from time to time. Like, she'll go over to her mom's house and her mom will ask her to babysit for an extended period of time, you know, not caring about whether she has work the next day or here, let me give you some money for gas, you know, she'll just use her. But that's not my biggest concern here. My biggest concern here is uh, she has cheated on me in the past. And, you know, it took a lot to overcome that. I've never been cheated on. So this is my first time experiencing that. But I was able to forgive her and overcome her. But I've never forgot about it. Sometimes when she's out, when she, quote unquote, says she's with her family, I'm not too sure if she's really with her family or with somebody else. I know it's selfish of me to actually have these thoughts in my head, but I can't help it. And I don't, sometimes I want to bring it up and just say, Hey, where were you really at? Or what were you really doing? But I don't want to come over as an overbearing, you know, trust boyfriend. So my real question to you is what do I do about this? I know for a long time, you've always said, use your words, use your words, but it's hard using my words when somebody will twist them and turn them into a very ugly conversation. If you can't express your insecurities to your girlfriend or your concerns to your girlfriend without her twisting your words and turning them back on you and making you feel like you've done something terrible, that's a problem. The refs are being worked there and you are at once somebody in the game and also the ref in your relationship because of the infidelity that went down. You've only been together two years. In that time, she cheated on you. She has, because of her obligations to her overbearing family, she has caused to be away and apart from you, it seems, frequently. In that circumstance, you have a right to ask for some ongoing reassurance. And she has an obligation to provide that to you. Not eternally, not two decades from now, but until she has earned your trust back. Eventually, you have to give her the benefit of the doubt, but that comes in time and that comes with you having an insecure moment because you're concerned because of what happened in the past and her demonstrating to you, proving to you that you had nothing to feel insecure about, that she wasn't cheating on you, lesson learned, never going to do that again. And eventually, you go through that enough where you feel a little insecure, you express it, she reassures, she demonstrates that she does deserve the benefit of the doubt. And she has a right at that point to be a little annoyed that she's still in the doghouse or that she's still being grilled or still being policed or still having to answer for this thing that you say that you've forgiven her for. But 
after the first six months, after the first year, six months ago, you being like, hey, every once in a while I need to just express this concern, this fear that is not grounded in nothing. And I need you to do the work of mollifying me. I need to do the work of smothering that fear, putting out that fire. And that's on her. That's her some, a responsibility that she has to take as the cheater in that circumstance. There is a sunset clause to that shit, though. And I've seen people who are still being policed, still being shamed, still being scolded, still being raked over the coals 10 years after a one-off infidelity that never, ever happened again. And that's not fair. At a certain point, it tips into emotional abuse. At a certain point, that becomes about revenge and power and not, I have a feeling and I'm having a sad and I need a little scoop of reassurance ice cream plopped on my head to feel better. And I can't give you definite ways of telling when it is one or the other. It's like pornography. You know it when you see it. You know it when you see it. When someone is being unfair and continuing to punish and persecute a partner who cheated that they took back and said that they forgave but really haven't forgiven because a part of that forgiveness in the long run is trust being reestablished, regranted, and the benefit of the doubt falling to even the cheater. But if all you're getting a year or six months after her cheating on you is grief and her beating you up when you ask her a question, not physically but emotionally, then I would think that something was up. I would think that she was gaming the refs. I would, if I were in your shoes, think that something, that there was a problem there. Either she was fucking other people and didn't want me asking any questions because the answers might explode our relationship or she's just selfish and immature and hasn't taken, even if she's not cheating, hasn't taken responsibility for her part in rebuilding trust in our relationship, which again creates responsibilities and obligations for her too. Not just you to reinvest her with your trust and to give her the benefit of every doubt, but for her to win your trust back, to demonstrate to you that she deserves the trust that you are granting her and demonstrate to you over the long haul that she does deserve the benefit of the doubt doesn't sound, based on what you shared just now, like she's doing any of that. Hey, Dan. I am calling with advice for the gal in episode 527 who can't orgasm without getting high but doesn't want to get high anymore. I would like to recommend that she checks out a cannabis sex lube. That way, her pussy can get high, but her head doesn't have to. Win-win situation. Uh, her boyfriend can also, you know enjoy a little bit of that cannabis goodness and he goes down on her. Um, well, one caveat is that most of these lubes are coconut oil-based, which degrades latex condoms. So more for fun before actually fucking than for after. So I'm calling for the woman whose uh, boyfriend's beard may be giving her acne. I love my boyfriend's beard and it's part of what attracts me to him. So if she's like me and wants the beard to stay, one option is to ask him to use conditioner when he showers. My boyfriend had a bristly beard and it was irritating the skin on my chin. He started using conditioner and the irritation went away. Also, just like I pee after sex to clean out any bacteria, consider washing your face after making out with an antibacterial soap and see if that helps. Hi, Dan. This is a response to episode 257 where you said that you made the comment that a little should move to red states in order to... And 
diverge from big cities in order to put the electoral college. I agree with you. However, I'd like to add that you do not necessarily need to move to a small nowhere town in order to do so, especially now, especially with liberals should move to Madison, Wisconsin. They should move to Columbus, Ohio, Charlotte, North Carolina, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh, Detroit, Ann Arbor, et cetera, et cetera. Move to a blue dot, red state, and eventually push that state into the blue. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here. Got the Savage Lovecast. If you would like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Read me every week in the coast in Halifax, my sex advice column, Savage Love. And you can gift the Savage Lovecast this holiday season to your friends and family who need the gift of more of me running my mouth more guests, more questions, and no ads in the Savage Lovecast Magnum. Go to www.savagelovecast.com to subscribe to the Magnum or gift a subscription to the Magnum. And I just want to add that our thoughts are with everyone in Brooklyn this weekend and this week who's suffering, lost a friend, lover, a collaborator, a roommate. We are just gutted for you and we are in our thoughts and our hearts again. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Erica Moen on Twitter at Erica Moen. She spells Erica with a K and Moen is M-O-E-N. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.